Good morning, everyone. It's great to be able to speak to you again as we continue to look at this letter um, from Paul to the Philippian church, uh, this letter from lockdown, as we've been calling it. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at uh, chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. So if you've got your Bible, uh, why don't you just turn with me, um, chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. I want to read it and you can follow along. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even as if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. We've seen as we've looked at this letter, Paul writing to the Philippians, um, giving them news of where he's up to. We've seen his love and his joy in them, in their having received the gospel, in their having uh, been partakers and partners in grace, partners in the gospel's advance, as they've shared with Paul his work to see the gospel, the good news of Jesus, taken to the ends of the earth. So Paul writes to them, telling them how that's going, saying, even in my imprisonment, the gospel has been advancing. Even in persecution, the gospel has been advancing. And he encourages them as they face persecution, rejection of their own for having believed in Jesus, for having lived lives that are radically different to the world around them. He encourages them to continue in their faith, to continue to pursue God for all that they're worth. And all the while thanking God and rejoicing, as we've seen again here, in them for the work that God is doing in them. And then over the last couple of weeks, um, we've seen this command come to love one another. He comes, he brings this command, love one another, submit to one another, count one another more important than yourselves, have unity. And then last week, as Phil shared with us, we see Jesus, this perfect example of that love, who now reigning over all, um, has been given a name above all names, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And now on the back of that comes this therefore, this weighty therefore, obey, therefore, live out your salvation, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, what are we talking about when we talk about this obedience? Paul now is dealing with Christian obedience, obeying Jesus, following Jesus, um, submitting to Jesus' rule, his kingship. Um, and, now, and specifically in this context, he's talking about loving one another. And, and so obedience is a crucial part of our faith. In fact, actually, it's worth saying obedience 
to God outworked in both our believing him and in our living according to our believing him is crucial, is a necessity in our being saved. It's a necessary element of our being saved. And so in other words, where there is no obedience, there is no saving grace. In fact, elsewhere, when Paul is talking about his work, he's writing to the Romans, he introduces himself in his ministry. He says, you know, my call is one to call people to the obedience of faith. That is the obedience that comes from believing in Jesus. And it's right for Paul to speak that way. The reason Paul can speak this way and the reason he's making such a big deal out of obedience and work here in this passage is because, as we'll see as we go on, that our living in obedience is a result of and a working out of God's work, God's saving power in our lives. So when Paul says, work out your salvation, it comes both as a command to continue in obeying Jesus and, and continue in the saving work that Jesus has called us to, to continue to live in that faith that brought us out of death and into life, and as an exhortation and encouragement to live in the way, to live in a way that shows what God has done and what God is doing in us. So this obedience is crucial to our faith, not just that first step of obedience where we say, yes, Jesus, I'm going to make you king of my life, but the ongoing obedience of, yes, Jesus, you can rule over all things in my life and I will be obedient to you. Now, as we look at this obedience, we see that this is not a mindless obedience. This is not unexamined or cold or robotic or dispassionate obedience. It is an obedience that comes from the heart. As we see later on in the verse, you know, do all things without grumbling. That's not a, an added extra. Oh, I've got to, I've got to love my neighbour, but now I've got to do it without grumbling as well. Now this, this demonstrates that the obedience that we're to have is one that is from the heart. This is a, a heart that is just loves to obey, that loves to love, a, 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 an obedience that delights in doing good. This is not a tw arm twisted behind the back obedience. This is a, an obedience that says, yes, Lord, yes, I want to do wholeheartedly what you would have me do just the same obedience as Jesus models, as we saw in those previous verses. Obedience, Jesus, who, though he was um, in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant and being obedient even to the form of death. It's that obedience that we are to follow and imitate. This is a God-given, faith-filled, thought-through, wholehearted, joy and love-empowered obedience. And it's the same kind of obedience that we see in Jesus in those previous verses. And it's this kind of obedience um, that we are motivated to, and Paul gives many reasons for, even in that therefore. Last week, um, Phil mentioned, didn't he, the, 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 the therefores are key words when we're looking at Bible verses. It shows us that we're not reading something in isolation. This is a line of thought. And so when we read this therefore in verse 12, we see that it's not a, an empty therefore, it is full of meaning. 
you know, it comes on the back of the example of Jesus, as we've said, who gives himself wholeheartedly in obedience, humbly. And the example of the reward that he's received, just as Jesus has been glorified, the promise for us is that we will be glorified. Just as Jesus has been lifted up after having been humbled, we too will be lifted up if we obey and follow God. Romans says, you know, as those whom he predestined, he called, those whom he called, he justified, those whom he justifies, he glorifies. And that is the promise on us. So we look at Jesus, his obedience and his um, exaltation. And we say, that is where I'm going. I'm going into glory with him to the glory of God, the father. Amen. And so we look and we see in that, therefore, there is the example of Jesus. Therefore, you follow that same example. Secondly, we see in that, therefore, the kingship of Jesus, as Phil was explaining to us last week. Jesus is king. He reigns over all things. And so part of his kingship is expressed in our obedience. Jesus is Lord. And so I submit to my Lord. I submit to the one who is king over all things as is right for me too. And so our obedience declares alongside all other things that Jesus really is Lord of all. He is Lord and my life will declare that. And that is what Paul wants for the Philippian church. But we also find when we look at all that that therefore carries, all that comes before that, you know, not only is Jesus an example to be followed or a king to be obeyed, but also we have participation in him. We're told beginning of chapter two, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, love one another. And then he says, this mindset is yours in Christ. It is yours in Christ. And what that means is, and Paul talks about this elsewhere in his other letters, those who believe belong to Jesus in such a way that Jesus belongs to them. So Jesus's obedience is our obedience. Jesus's love is our love. And so not only are we given Jesus's status before God as clean because of all that he's done for us, his forgiveness of us, his dying for us on the cross, but as we enter into that relationship with Jesus, we receive Jesus's righteousness. Paul will say later in the letter, he'll say later in the letter, I don't have a righteousness of my own. I don't have a righteousness of my own, but the righteousness I have is the righteousness of Christ that is dependent on faith. And so those who believe in Jesus partake in him and receive not only his status, but also his righteousness, his love. And so when Paul says, therefore, obey, work out your salvation, he is appealing to the kingship, the example, and our participation in Jesus. Those three things are taken hold of by faith. It is faith that sees the example set by Christ. It is faith that sees the king on the throne and it is faith that takes hold of belonging to and ownership of Jesus. 
we're told in Hebrews that Abraham by faith obeyed. And that is the example for us to follow. It's faith that takes hold of everything that's preceded this verse that we're in today and says, yes, that is true. And so I will work out my salvation with fear and trembling in obedience to Jesus. It's faith that does that. We cannot drum up obedience from other places. In fact, the Bible says without faith, it is impossible to please God. You might do everything in your power to do what you feel God wants. But if it comes without faith, it's powerless to do anything to increase your standing with God. And yet by faith, we enter in to this relationship with God. By believing him, we receive this free gift of salvation and we are partakers in Christ. And then there's this strange phrase, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So how then, if it's if if God saves me, how then am I to work out my salvation? I can't do that. So, well, we do it. You do it in fear and trembling. So surely that just raises more questions. Well, that fear and trembling, I think, becomes clearer as we look at what follows it. There is a four there. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So how come there is fear and trembling? What happened to the surety and the certainty that we saw earlier on in Philippians, where Paul says, I'm confident that he who began this work in you will see it to completion. Where's that confidence gone now? Has it been replaced by fear and trembling? Is there uncertainty now? And what about that fearless faith that we saw right at the end of chapter one that faces up against those things that, is, that the earth would be terrified by? And yet those of faith, they say, I'm confident in God and actually meet trial with joy. Where's that fearless faith gone? Well, this is not a fingers crossed fear. This is not a will I or will I not make the cut? We've not lost the confidence of chapter one. We've not lost the confidence that God who begins a work finishes it. This is remaining confident. This is, and so this is, not, this is not a, as I say, a fingers crossed fear. You know, will I, will I not make it? Will I make it into pleasing God? Hey, it has been established. You cannot please God on your own. You do not make the cut. And so there's no fingers crossed involved. No, the, the clue, as I say, is in that four. God works in you. Next question is then, well, if it's God's work and it's sure to be completed, if it's God who's doing it, then why should it lead me to be fearful? And I think there are a few things going on there. First, God is an awesome and terrifying God. We see in the Psalms and we see in the Old Testament when God arrives and he moves and he does something, the people of God fall on their face in fear. They don't look at him. He's so holy, so other so terrifying. This is the God who created the universe and rules and judges over all things, who raises up and casts down. This is the God who performs mighty works. And so when he is in our presence, when we see him, the appropriate response is fear and trembling. 
we recognize that we aren't able to please a holy God on our own. And so when we see what is required of us, when we see what he demands, we fear him and we tremble. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the Proverbs say. <laughs> that is where wisdom starts. We see, though, as we continue through scripture, 1 John 4, perfect love casts out fear. And so whilst God is a terrifying God, we can enter in, we can come into his presence. Although there is still, as Paul says here, some fear and trembling. And the reason for that, I believe, is this. When God, who rules over all things, says, I am going to come, I'm going to move into your home and I'm going to do some work there. The appropriate response is fear and trembling. This is a terrifying God. Paul kind of thinks along those same lines as, as he's writing to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7. He's talking about how we, the church, are at the temple of God. This is where God dwells. This is where he's at work. This is where he lives in us, in our own lives. And he goes from that, uh, from reading and looking at the promises of that in the Old Testament, and he goes straight from that to saying, let's be afraid of God, therefore. And so when we recognise the power of God and his intention to live in us and to dwell with us and to change us, we are scared, <laughs> but we are confident that he will finish his work. This is all God's work. It is God who works in us. It's God who creates all things and rules over all things. As I said before, Paul can say later, I don't have a righteousness of my own. I don't have a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The gospel doesn't stop at setting you free from the consequence of sin. It sets you free from the reign of sin in your life. Before Jesus set you free, you were not able to not sin. But now he has entered in, now he has come. He has set you free from its rule in your life. You're no longer a slave to sin, but you belong to righteousness. And thank God that one day when Jesus has finished his work in me, not only will I be free not to sin, but I will be so free from it that I'll have no desire to do anything except that which God wants from me. I will do good and I will be unable to do wrong. Paul says, as we live this way, as we live in the good of those things, we are lights in the world, demonstrating to the world the ruling and the kingship and the love of God. And we do that by continuing to hold fast to his word and continuing to trust him and believe in him and enjoy him and letting the truth of his word shape us and transform us. Amen.